Are the Western allies risking World War III by confronting Russia over Ukraine? Newly elected Speaker Kevin McCarthy sets out a new agenda alongside conservative allies. And in other news, Mexico may be facing a civil war due to conflict that arose with the arrest of a former cartel kingpin's son. Welcome to Inside Israel News, your home for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news politics, current events in the Middle East, and world news. Or as the internet trolls say, mouthpiece of the Zionist conspiracy, spokesman for the elders of Zion, highly paid propagandist of the Mossad. Yeah, no. This is Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Welcome back, insiders. This is a world news report. I've talked about uh, Israeli news in the last episode, and we'll be discussing that a little more in depth in future episodes. Uh, A lot going on, and there's going to be a lot of excitement there. So uh, I'm going to get this out of the way, and then I'll return to world news after uh, things settle down in Israel. There will certainly be no shortage of topics to discuss going forward there, for sure. Uh, But today, uh, discussing the uh, various issues in the world, leading that, of course, is the question of World War III. Are we headed toward the big one? Uh, and uh, some other political stuff going on in the world and uh, some other things. Um, just a, a quick glance around the world, a few things that are, are worthy of note around the world that you may or may not have heard about. Uh, while we all heard a lot about the um, center-right Uh, protesters in Brazil who drove the government from their government buildings uh, amid 1,200 arrests of the terrorists by uh, President uh, Lula da Silva. Uh, Of course, uh, no one was killed, and it was uh, a protest gone wild. And obviously, Bolsonaro uh, told them not to do it, you know, same kind of thing, but they did it anyway. Uh, But, you know, anyone who protests is a terrorist, in, in these countries. When you po- protest the establishment, uh, you're, you're a terrorist. Meanwhile, in Peru, uh, nearly 50 people have been killed in riots and demonstrations by radical left groups there, and uh, no one knows anything about it. You know, if you, if you watch the U.S. media, it's not happening, right? But it's left-wing protesters there. Nearly 50 people have died, right? Compared to what just happened in Brazil, uh, that is a much more serious issue. And obviously, I'll be talking a little bit about Mexico soon. Um, but th- those are some of the, the things going on right here in the Americas that are troubling, right? We have, we have some serious problems with some very corrupt governments uh, in, in the one instance, in the case of Brazil. And then over in Peru, uh, the government trying to protect the country from ra- dangerous radical leftists who want to uh, you know, destroy those countries. I mean, the, the guys like Correa and uh, Chavez and now... Uh, uh, Maduro, these guys are, you know, they're destroying their countries. I mean, people in Venezuela are starving to death. Uh, the, the economy in Ecuador has been destroyed. Uh, you know, these these are unfortunate things that happen. It's terrible that, that these things happen to these people. But, you know, they're, uh, it, you know, it, it's a sad struggle. What can you do? Uh, but I, I want to make sure everybody knows about it. I'll obviously be discussing Mexico in a little bit. Political news in the U.S. has been interesting. <laughs> Joe Biden being caught uh, with classified documents. You know, when when a handful of classified documents were found in Donald Trump's 
house, those could be photographed and those photographs could be, you know, spread all over the place. Uh, and uh, uh, that was treason, literally treason. You know, he should have been strung up and, and you know, it was, it was it was awful and it was the worst thing that had ever happened, you know, because no president has ever had, you know, no former president has ever had classified documents, um, actually all of them have. And so, uh, you know, like with the former presidents, the National Archives will occasionally request some of those documents. And President Trump handed them over voluntarily, like every other president. And then the FBI did some dumb raid and, you know, found a handful of things that had really no relevance to anything. Well, now classified documents have been found at various offices and garages and what have you uh, associated with then Vice President Joe Biden. And the problem here is, while the president has the power to declassify documents, the vice president doesn't. So what in the world was the vice president doing with these documents? And, you know, he didn't have the, uh, you know, he didn't have the power to declassify them or anything. So it's, it's kind of messy. Um, talk about being caught with your pants down. Of course, these documents were found before the midterm elections and we're only hear about, hearing about it months later, naturally, because... Uh, uh, of course, these things couldn't be reported at a time when it might do any any kind of political injury to the left. Right. And Joe Biden visits the border and, and just kind of does an airport visit and in and out and uh, does absolutely nothing uh, of any kind of interest there. Uh, but meanwhile, you know, 800 people a year are dying along our border. Uh, that's not to mention all the fentanyl that's killing Americans, our young people right here in the U.S., uh, and I'm not even going to talk about the vast degree of abuse and maltreatment. Uh, Ted Cruz just did an episode on the verdict. Excellent episode. I highly recommend about the border. And he goes over in great detail all of the horrors that are going on down there that could be prevented if the United States would just enforce the laws, which, of course, Biden and the Democrats have not done. So there you go. Now you're hearing some of the political news that you wouldn't normally hear if you were listening to the mainstream media and world news uh, around. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, recently elected speaker. I talked a little bit about the speaker election in the last episode uh, and how it, it was similar to coalition building uh, policies, in, you know, practices in multi-party proportional systems. And now we're seeing the fruits of that. Uh, the, the House has passed a new set of rules that have restored debate and discussion and the ability to offer amendments on the floor and the ability to uh, for an individual member to call for a motion to vacate the chair, which is basically a vote of confidence against the Speaker. And the Speaker of the House is the closest thing uh, we have to a prime minister in America. And while that office really only pertains to the House of Representatives, there's no administrative or executive authority attached to it like there is in uh, a parliamentary system. The fact is the speaker does a lot. It has a lot of say in how the agenda is set in the House. And since John Boehner, uh, through Paul Ryan and, of course, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker's office has just been getting more and more powerful. And with the COVID thing and the proxy voting, it just got to being where the Speaker dictated to the House how, what the House was going to do and presented bills to the House at the last minute that no one had read. And they just had to vote up and down on them. Well, those days are gone. So the House of Representatives is finally going to do its job. They have to be there in person to vote and be counted as voting, uh, and they're going to uh, be able to debate measures, you know, debate bills, have time to read them, and uh, be able to offer amendments. The House of Representatives is actually going to be a legislative body once again, <laughs> not uh, the dictatorship of the Speaker. So I, for one, am really excited about that, and I'm proud of the uh, conservative members who did not feel 
comfortable with the situation as they came into the House and drew out the election uh, of the Speaker for, you know, 14 ballots before electing him on this on the 15th because uh, they wanted to make sure that they were heard. And that that's that's how we do things. That's democracy. That's politics. That's, you know, the dirty, messy business of lawmaking. Right. And it, it's a beautiful thing to watch. And behold, uh, the more chaotic, the more messy it is, the better for the American people. Because when things are very orderly, it's easy for the people who are who are with the woke hive mind to be monolithic, to have you know an easy time electing leaders and all band together around this agenda or this item or this person or what have you, uh, because they're they're all on one track, right? They they don't care about free speech, they don't care about democracy, you know, they just want to win, they want power. The power to them. You have to do things their way. Use pronouns that they say. Uh, you're only allowed to say what they say you're allowed to say. You're not allowed to disagree with them at all, right? Uh, they should be able to shove legislation down your throat, right, and force you to uh, adopt it. Look the other way while all kinds of abuses are committed by the government. Not anymore. So the House has already voted uh, to get rid of the 87,000 new IRS agents. Uh, unfortunately, that's not going to get rid of them, in fact, because the Senate has to concur. Uh, but you know, that's a, an interesting starting point for negotiations with the Senate over future spending. Right? The Senate now knows if they want to do anything with the House involving future spending, that's an issue that uh, they're going to have to work around. They're going to have to figure out how to uh, compromise with the House on that. And uh, the House is not likely to want to compromise. Uh, and, of course, the House is going to investigate the FBI uh, and the Twitter files where the FBI has been caught paying Twitter to suppress free speech. Wow. Uh, we, we talked for some time about how the uh, FBI had become the new KGB for the Democrat Party. And now, wow, uh, just uh, the things coming out now are disturbing. So it'll be good to investigate that. Uh, some people need to go to prison. At the very least, some names need to be dragged through the mud uh, of the people who did this, uh, who attacked American democracy and freedom. You know, so we have the people saying that, you know, Donald Trump and people on the right are a threat to freedom and democracy and all this kind of thing. Uh, but in fact, they are themselves trying to suppress democracy and freedom, and free speech. So just wow. Uh, so much stuff coming out now. Uh, not going to go too much deeper into all that. But it will be nice to have these investigations investigate um, President Biden's corruption and some of these other uh, scandals that are out there. There are a lot of them. The, now we have documents, what have you. Uh, apparently, work is being done on the impeachment of Homeland Security uh, Secretary. I almost said minister because <laughs> internationally. Homeland Security uh, Secretary Mayorkas, who uh, has failed to, to secure the border. Uh, that impeachment would theoretically go to trial in the Senate. And, of course, the Senate will not convict. Uh, but at the very least, it will draw attention to what's going on at the border. And I think that's why Biden went down there. He knows that he had to preempt, you know, the media could say, oh, the president went to the border. Everything's fine. Nothing to see here uh, before Republicans make a big issue out of that politically. Uh, that's an issue where, you know, 60, 65 percent of Americans want border security. Uh, it's, it's not really a political issue. It's, it's a pretty universal issue here in America. So with that, um, I'm going to close out this segment. Uh, fascinating things happening in American politics. And I'll uh, move on to the main topic after a uh, short break here, uh, where I'll talk about World War III.
Back during the War on Terror, as that was still raging, uh, a lot of people were really caught up in that particular issue going on. Uh, it's a serious problem, granted. But a number of us uh, began to think about the long term uh, and continue to see the long term strategic situation. And that's me. You know, I'm always a kind of big fan of game theory and this kind of thing. And looking forward, you know, what were what were the real strategic threats to the United States? Now, at that time in the aughts, um, military supremacy on the part of the U.S. was uh, so it, it was so great. There wasn't really a question of any possible major serious confrontation. But the scenario remained that if one, this is kind of like a logic, if this, then that, right? If one, the U.S. military continued to atrophy and decline uh, and uh, was not modernized with uh, advanced weaponry and, and kept up, right? If the U.S. military was allowed to weaken and decline and two, countries like Russia and China continued to gain technological uh, advances toward approximate military parity. And then what followed from that was a very serious threat of a nightmare World War III scenario that I'm going to call the four-party attack. Um, This is a scenario I'm going to discuss pre-2016, and you'll understand why when I get on to the next part of this. Uh, But this is this is how this scenario went. You know, as America's uh, nuclear forces age and our conventional forces are not kept up at high tech par with other countries. You know, in other words, uh, we have a vast technological advantage over our uh, potential enemies now. Uh, but you know, if that if that went if we went on not investing in military technology, if we continued to focus on other priorities, uh, climate change and, and social uh, programs and so on and so forth, instead of paying for our defense, then we would, uh, you know, slowly that advantage would disappear. And we've seen you know, China trying to develop stealth fighters. We've seen Russia and China developing hypersonic missiles that can be delivered from uh, fighter aircraft. We've seen all kinds of things uh, that are being developed uh, that the U.S. has a little, been a little bit slow to counter. Right. We are countering them. We are developing our own capabilities in these areas. Obviously, we have the F-22 stealth fighter and the F-35 uh, fighter is pretty stealthy and so on and so forth. So we do have technologies that are more advanced than these things at this point. But you can just imagine it's not that far uh, for China to advance to develop a stealth fighter that's approximately as good as ours, maybe. Right. I mean, you know, in any case, it's, it's one of those kinds of scenarios. So, uh, you know, as we atrophy and as they advance, there would be a scenario where they might you know, venture a conventional war, the four-party assault. And the, the scenario looks something like this. Iran, Russia, China, and North Korea all attack at once, right? And in that moment, local U.S. forces in Europe and NATO forces would have to confront the Russian military, and that would take quite, you know, that would be quite a to-do. Again, this is the strategic calculus pre-2016, assuming that things were going to continue on the same trajectory that they were in 2016, right? Sometime in the 2030s, perhaps, uh, you know, 2020s, uh, somewhere in there, in this time frame, we would be in this scenario, right? So NATO and, and European forces uh, of the United States would be busy with Russia, 
right? Uh, Central Command and uh, our Arab allies and Israel would be busy um, in some ways in, in uncoordinated efforts to defend against Iran, right? Uh, and we'd have to use our local forces there to try to, to contain Iran, right? Uh, our local forces in South Korea and the South Korean military would be trying to hold off North Korea. Maybe Japan might get involved, not quite sure, right? And the bulk of U.S. forces would be engaged with China, trying to keep them from invading Taiwan and or Vietnam and the South China Sea area, right? So um, that that's a nightmare scenario. And you have to think about this. You know, industrial capacity in the United States is not what it once was. It was a very interesting discussion in uh, the Telegram podcast on the Ukraine. Uh, typically, it's about Ukraine. But they were talking about you know, U.S. military situation, U.S. industrial situation. During the Second World War, and a lot of people don't know this, but I talk about this in my various podcasts, the ships that were essential to bringing victory in that war were the ships built under the Two Ocean Navy Act. All of the ships that were ordered during the war, none of those ships saw combat. A few of the smaller ones, but at a point where it was no longer relevant. Right? By the time the destroyers and uh, destroyer escorts, later called frigates in, in uh, nautical nomenclature, uh, by the time those ships started to arrive, the Battle of the Atlantic had already been won by ships of the Two Ocean Navy Act and uh, British warships, you know, coordinating with our, our British allies. Uh, the, the Essex-class aircraft carriers that were so essential to fighting the Japanese, built under the Two Ocean Navy Act, right? Uh, the battleships, that, the new fast battleships of the North Carolina, South Dakota, and Iowa class were ordered in the late 30s, right? Uh, none of those were Two Ocean Navy ships. The Two Ocean Navy battleships were all canceled because we realized that battleships were not going to win wars. Uh, it was aircraft carriers. Uh, the Midway class carriers that were ordered after the Two Ocean Navy Act, the, the idea of having these larger, more, uh, like we called them battle carriers, these larger aircraft carriers that could carry much larger uh, air forces to fight uh, at sea and what have you, uh, the Midway would literally be commissioned right after Japan surrendered, right? So none of those ships would see action that were ordered during the war. It was just those that were ordered under the Two Ocean Navy Act. So you think about that. We have... Right now, 11 super, you know, super carriers, right, uh, that, that are there. We have the, the 10 carriers of the Nimitz class plus the Gerald R. Ford, our new class of aircraft carrier. And the John F. Kennedy is coming soon as a 12th. Uh, the Nimitz, the Eisenhower, the two oldest of our Nimitz class carriers are aging and really need to be decommissioned and replaced. But they are still in service. And we have plans to build the USS Enterprise uh, in circa 2030, which will uh, help to replace the Nimitz. And then after that, two more Ford-class carriers, the Dory Miller, named after a uh, Pearl Harbor hero, who, the uh, African-American gentleman who you know, grabbed hold of a machine gun and downed a number of zeros uh, during the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor. A great American, great name for an aircraft carrier, uh, and an as-yet-unnamed fifth Ford class carrier. But remember that these Ford class carriers cost $13 billion and they take five or six years to build. I mean, right now, the Dory Miller and uh, its sister ship, uh, parts on that are for that are on order. We're starting to get, you know, we have to order the reactors, we have to order all this stuff up front. And uh, there's considerable cost savings ordering two at once. But again, those are circa 2035, 2040. 
right? If we had to replace the 12 aircraft carriers in our fleet right now, given our current industrial capacity, it would take 50 years. A war can be fought in less than a day in mo with modern technology, right? The critical battle. So you could imagine in this nightmare scenario, if, uh, especially with the help of Iran and North Korea distracting some of our forces, if Russia and China could get lucky enough to down just enough aircraft to sink just enough ships and submarines and what have you to do just enough damage that we would not have the capability to overwhelm them with our conventional forces, then they could fight a war of attrition in which their current industrial capacity would put them not at so great a disadvantage to the United States. And we, we're starting to see a little bit of this in the current conflict with Russia. Who can build more artillery shells? Who can build rockets? Who can build munitions? Who can arm and clothe and feed soldiers? These become big long-term questions. And if in an initial confrontation with the four-party assault, uh, America was taken by surprise and our allies perhaps taken by surprise, or at least, um, you know, if serious blows were dealt early on, right, we've had the, the sort of Tom Clancy scenario of a carrier task force being hit by a nuke, which would neutralize the carrier and a number of its escorting ships. So that's a, a dangerous scenario. All right. But that scenario was there. And this was the greatest likelihood behind World War III. And because Russia and China especially are nuclear powers, and North Korea has some nuclear weapons, although their capabilities are limited, and uh, we're not entirely sure they'd even be able necessarily to deliver a nuclear warhead to a, um, a foreign target. The fact is, they, they are there. Which means that in this war scenario, while the U.S. and allies could, could try to drive Russia back into Russian territory or drive China back from Taiwan and, and uh, Vietnam, any other countries they tried to invade. We could not invade any of these countries, maybe Iran and North Korea within certain limited boundaries. OK, but we could not invade China. We could not invade Russia because to do so would be to risk them launching their nuclear weapons. If they have nothing left to lose, they might. Uh, go ahead and launch. So this this creates that kind of scenario, and it's really nightmarish. The best way to avoid such a scenario is to make sure that we are ready for it so that both countries know, all the four countries know, if they pull that trigger, they're going to go down. This was the greatest scenario, most likely scenario for World War III up through the late teens, late 20 teens. And uh, there's an interesting book series if you're interested in science fiction slash military fiction. Uh, Jack Razon wrote these uh, at least two books uh, about World War III as this scenario, right? And he talks about the U.S. atrophying and the military uh, getting weaker and then struggling in a conflict with these parties to try to uh, uh, build back up and, and go to war and, and fight these conflicts, right? So just a, a fascinating um fascinating fiction series. So I highly recommend it. Available in audiobooks or uh, print edition if you want. Uh, Jack Razone, World War III series. Uh, so these are, these are kind of a fun thing. That scenario is no longer viable. And it's no longer viable for two reasons. One reason is Donald Trump, as I'm about to explain. The other reason is Vladimir Putin, as I will further explain. So in 2016, we had a, an upset election where Hillary Clinton didn't win. And so this scenario of continued atrophy and continued weakening of the U.S. 
uh, was averted. Now, we are still spending ourselves into oblivion and still having some problems here in the U.S., for sure. Uh, but we'll slowly work on getting back on our feet here. Uh, we'll get there. All right. And uh, since the, the whole COVID thing, there's been a, a great awakening lately about industrial capacity, the ability to you know, make medicines in the United States, right? If, if all of our medicines are made in China and we have a crisis, you know, the Chinese are not going to send medicine over here if they need it there, right? So our ability to manufacture medicines is now a, a strategic, uh, of strategic importance, some could have argued. But anyway, <laughs> the point is we're now paying attention to our industrial capacity, our ability to make steel uh, here in the United States, our ability to manufacture ships and weapons of war, tanks, aircraft. We have to be able to do all of that. Chips. Where do the chips come from? You know, can we trust chips from China? Might they have little, you know, programs in them that might be activated to shut down phones and computers and high tech systems and software and weapons? Right. Ground planes and what have you. Right. So this kind of stuff. So we're, we're looking at that stuff. We're paying attention to it now. Uh, but in 2016, Donald Trump won the presidency. And as he got in in 2017, he started looking at exactly what I just talked about, that nightmare scenario. And what do we do about that nightmare scenario? And his uh, solutions were fascinating. You know, for, for purportedly being a Russian agent, <laughs> Donald Trump immediately went to NATO. I mean, if he was a Russian agent, maybe, you know, he would say, well, when he, he talked about, you know, well, we should dissolve NATO. And a lot of people thought that meant he was a Russian agent. Uh, I agreed with him. I, I told you before on the podcast that I opposed NATO's existence right up until um, maybe the Second Chechen War kind of made me rethink that position a little bit. But uh, right up until the invasion of Georgia in 2008, I thought NATO was uh, an antique and could be gotten rid of, and that the U.S. would be better having direct relationships with uh, Eastern European countries in terms of building up their defenses, uh, which I called, uh, you know, to encircle the Russian bear, an article I wrote back in those days. Well, in any case, we have NATO, and it needs to stay. And so Trump called, uh, talked about NATO's dissolution, and uh, NATO allies got to be worried about that. And so he, he really was as a, as a negotiating tactic, a brilliant tactic, because, you know, he goes over to visit Europe and the NATO allies are all, you know, concerned about, oh, my God, you know, the U.S. is going to pull troops out of Europe and and uh, is going to, you know, NATO is going to going to be weakened. And, and he's talking about dissolving NATO. And so for the first time in recent history, Germany, France, the U.K. started increasing defense spending. It's great when you've got Uncle Sam to foot your defense bill for you and provide your security. But now Uncle Sam wants a little something in return. Now NATO's paying their bills and uh, our allies are starting to do their job, to do their part. Uh, President Trump warned European leaders about their climate change policies and making themselves more reliant on Russian gas, and Russian energy, uh, Germany shutting down its nuclear plants, shutting down its coal plants. And in exchange for uh, relying more heavily on Russian gas was a bad idea. Right? Ted Cruz uh, introduced a bill in the Senate to impose sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which he feared would uh, uh, allow Russia to complete its invasion of Ukraine. And indeed, Vladimir Putin made no moves on Ukraine as long as those sanctions were in place. Obviously, uh, Biden got rid of those as soon as he lifted the sanctions as soon as he came to office. So that uh, that created that problem there. 
Anyway, so natural gas exports from the U.S. U.S. economy producing more gas. All of a sudden, you know, U.S. ships filled a, uh, ships full of U.S. liquefied natural gas are showing up in Estonia and Latvia in the Baltics. They're they're showing up in European ports, and America was exporting energy to Europe as an alternative to Russia. Uh, so that that really put Russia in a weak situation right there, kind of knocked them back on their heels. Uh, likewise, President Trump played hardball with China, pushing for a tough trade deal that would balance the trade deficit a little more, force China to buy a lot more American goods, force them to behave themselves on intellectual property and other such. America had the power, the leverage to push China on all these issues for years. Uh, and Trump was so successful at that that ultimately China had to sign phase one of that deal. And since Biden came to office, he's kind of been stuck with it because the tech companies and a lot of other uh, curiously left wing interest groups. So Donald Trump wasn't you know, that woke. He wasn't that tribal. He saw that, you know, even though Silicon Valley didn't like Trump, America needed that economic uh, powerhouse and letting China run rampant, uh, a rough shot over them, you know, it's not good. So. Anyway, Biden's largely had to pursue the same policy with China quietly, but but the same policy. And COVID, of course, like I said, doubled down on that. We, we can't be manufacturing medicines and critical strategic uh, technologies in China when they are that could be threatened, you know, that could threaten the security of the U.S. in the future. Anyway, so playing hardball with the two big threats right now. Shortly thereafter, uh, President Trump worked with uh, Israel and the UAE in Bahrain, and here we have the Avraham Accords, right? Now Israel is making friends, normalizing relations with Arab countries. And while the Saudis haven't joined that, the Saudis certainly this would not have happened without the Saudis assenting to it, right? And the Saudis have since then, you know, said that they'll allow Israel to use their airspace for civilian overflight, which strongly implies that military overflights to bomb Iran might be in the future. And there's increasing talk today, of course, of Saudi Arabia normalizing relations with Israel. So it's not out there. It's not a, it's not an impossible scenario. But the point is, Egypt Israel, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states are slowly coming together in a coordinated effort that will allow them to defend against Iran, which means that local U.S. forces and the coordinated efforts of our allies in the Middle East, Israeli and Arab alike, could contain Iran. That would free up U.S. forces in the area if they were needed elsewhere, say China. Right. Uh, which is a problem for the Chinese, because now Iran would no longer be able to hold down the, the degree, the the amount of U.S. forces that they would have to hold down to make the, the nightmare uh, four party assault scenario viable. And when it comes to North Korea, not only does U.S. Uh, have local forces in South Korea that could help the South Koreans fight North Korea, but Japan has now clarified that uh, they consider defending South Korea to be part of Japan's self-defense, that they consider North Korea a threat to Japanese interests. And so now the Japanese self-defense forces and the, the Republic of Korea forces, or ROC forces, as we call them, ROK, right? ROC, Republic of Korea, um, would be able to take out, uh, again, with the help of local U.S. forces, would be able to contain North Korea and perhaps defeat them. With Japan's help and the help of local U.S. forces, it is not inconceivable that South Korea 
could invade North Korea and end the Korean War. The point being that North Korea certainly wouldn't be able to make the kind of trouble that it could make in the past, right? And now Vladimir Putin has done possibly the dumbest thing in his time in office. He's usually a pretty uh, strategic thinker, and he's usually a, he's a good chess player. Uh, but he's made a big mistake in Ukraine. They came close. They almost got Kiev. They almost uh, got Zelensky, and they they could have, you know, they came very close to to breaking Ukraine up and doing their you know, Ukraine demilitarized with a a president chosen by Putin and um, weakened. Right. Which would uh, strengthen the, the four party assault scenario. But that has blown up in his face. And uh, now uh, Ukraine is, is launched offensive that have offenses that have defeated the Russian army and driven them back in a number of places. And so it's very clear that Russia is not winning this war. Uh, and some people say, well, it's a lie to say Ukraine is winning. Ukraine is winning in that they have not been defeated and they are not anywhere near defeat. And they grow stronger by the day while the Russians grow weaker. So it is, it is more true that Ukraine is winning than that, you know, Russia is winning. Um, Russia hasn't completely lost, uh, but they're in a pretty desperate situation. And uh, the situation is very dangerous. It, it certainly looks a lot better for Ukraine than it does for Russia at this point. But the Russian military has proven itself inept at fighting conventional wars. It has proven that its technology is not very effective. Their fifth-gen fighters can barely fly. Uh, their weapon systems are not very good. All of their uh, high-tech weapons that were supposed to be bringing technological parity have proven to be not so effective. And obviously the Chinese are watching all of this. And the Chinese military is completely untried. Uh, China hasn't fought a war since it fought Vietnam and 1979, and the only war that China has come near winning in recent years, in, in recent centuries, centuries plural, uh, was in Korea, where they just sent millions and millions of men, most of them uh, defectors from the Chinese nationalists, uh, to die in a meat grinder against the U.S., uh, which the U.S. was able to fend off, and that's why South Korea is still free. But, uh, you know, China's in a very awkward situation. So now, if we had this four-party assault scenario, Russia could not participate at the moment. And even if there were some kind of ceasefire in Ukraine and the war ended tomorrow and they just decided to leave the battle lines where they are now and go home, uh, Russia would not be in a position to pose any kind of serious conventional threat for decades. I mean, the Russian economy is... If the war ended tomorrow, the Russian economy would need 10 to 15 years to recover before Russia could afford to invest in developing... A better military, right? Uh, and that uh, basically neutralizes Russia. So now China stands alone in this scenario. We can contain Iran without major U.S. forces. We can contain and perhaps defeat North Korea without uh, significant U.S. forces, and that allows us to focus on China. Uh, NATO and U.S. forces could focus our energy on China in a way that uh, that scenario uh, could not happen. So when People come at me like, you know, we're risking war with with you with Russia by helping Ukraine. Um, now you have to argue with them. First of all, we, we do understand basic morality, right? It is Russia that invaded Ukraine. It is Putin who is threatening war. You know, Putin is the one risking war, right? It's not good for us. A nuclear exchange would not be good for us, but there it would be worse for Putin. There's a greater likelihood that we would be able to recover than that Russia would. Russia would be dead. 
right? And I'm about to get into why Russia's already dead here in just a minute. But um, in any case, this scenario is no longer viable, right? We are, we are in a situation now where uh, any such conflict would be a big problem for China. Now, Looking at the long-term U.S. strategic interests at this point, uh, what is the price tag for not having that nightmare scenario, right? If you could put a price, right? So if, let's just go back to 2016 to the, the four-party assault scenario, right? Before Ukraine, before all this stuff. If Russia attacked, China attacked, North Korea and Iran attacked and uh, uncoordinated and no allies and what have you, and we're, we're desperately trying to contain these four powers, Right. Along with uh, uh, what allies we have. Right. How many lives are going to be lost? First, there's the human cost. Millions of people would die in such a scenario. It's a guarantee. And hundreds of thousands of Americans. There is no way we could fight such a war without a draft, without getting more Americans in uniform and off to fight. You know, young Americans would have to stop worrying about their gender identity and their pronouns, put on uniforms and go get shot at. And a lot of them would die. Uh, so that's that's a cost we can't really put a dollar amount to. But what would the dollar amount of that scenario have cost? You know, $10 trillion, $20 trillion, $30 trillion. That's, that's the value of the U.S. national debt, essentially, right now. Okay? It's a lot of money. Could we be in a situation where we would have to double? Our already engorged national debt could be doubled in order to defeat them? Right? Okay, so how much money have we sent to Ukraine so far? About $100 billion or so. Uh, that's a, a lot cheaper than $10 trillion, $20 trillion, $30 trillion. And no Americans are dying. I mean, Americans who, who have volunteered to join Ukraine's foreign, uh, foreign division, right? Their, their foreign legion, right? Their, their unit of uh, foreign volunteers, right? Those, those people are facing conflict. But... No, no U.S. forces, no active duty uniformed U.S. personnel are actively engaged in fighting in Ukraine. That's pretty damn cheap. Excuse my, my parlance, okay? There is no dollar amount you can put for the value of not having to face that four-party assault scenario. It's over. It's done. Crisis averted. There will be no World War III on the, along those lines. There can't be. It, you know, what, how would China win all by itself, right? If, they, if the three of them, if North Korea, Iran, and China attacked at once, Iran would be neutralized very quickly. North Korea would be neutralized in, in short order, depending on, you know, how that goes on, on the ground. And the forces we need to defeat the major Chinese military are already in, in region for the most part. And we could get more forces to the region shortly thereafter. You know, it would take a long time and Russia, China would have to be lucky on their on their dice rolls every single time. They'd have to hit 12 every time uh, on every single little thing. And as we've seen in war, going back to World War II, uh, a lot of those dice rolls don't pan out. And the U.S. made a few dice rolls that didn't pan out. The Japanese made a lot of dice rolls that really didn't come out well for them. Uh, you know, at Midway, all the luck, the U.S. had all the luck. You know, in terms of timing, uh, you know, the, the launching or failure to launch of scout aircraft and all this kind of thing that brought U.S. dive bombers over the Japanese aircraft carriers at just the time when they were refueling and rearming aircraft below decks so that we could hit them without the Japanese being able to launch an attack 
at U.S. forces. I mean, the luck, all the luck was on our side right there. Okay. You, you don't get dice rolls like that very often. At the Battle of the Bulge, where German forces launched an offensive toward Antwerp in December of 1944, uh, a lot of the luck early on was on the German side. The U.S. hadn't quite prepared for the possibility of an attack. Uh, no one thought the attack would come. No one saw the German build up. By the time they figured out the Germans were about to attack, it was almost too late. Our forces at Boston were besieged. It was a mess, all right? Thankfully, we had George S. Patton, who saw what was going on and immediately marched his army hundreds of miles north uh, and hit the Germans in the flank and, and put an end to that. But again, a lot of the dice rolls went Germany's way there. Uh, and we were, we were fortunate that you know, we had the, uh, the logistical power and you know Patton's uh, aggressive, uh, let's say his, his aggressive... Uh, attitudes on war, his philosophy <laughs> of fighting war that uh, brought us uh, victory there. Okay, China's not going to get all the dice rolls. They might get one or two. They might be able to knock out a carrier task force, maybe. But the the dice roll that would have them take out two, that's pretty. That's a that's a long shot. Let alone five or six. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Okay, so. That scenario has been averted. Whatever the cost is for averting that scenario is worth it. All right. We are going to have to spend $350 billion and possibly more to rebuild our nuclear weapons systems. Right? We have ancient ICBMs that are Minuteman 3s developed back in the, in the 70s. They use five and a quarter inch floppy disks. I'm old enough to remember these things from the 80s. You guys remember these? Anybody, anybody in the audience remember these things? You had to slide this big five-inch disc into a, and it actually flopped. It was actually floppy into a drive. And you'll know, be careful not to, to rip or tear anything. Anyway, uh, those those were the computers that control them. Still use those kinds of uh, systems, and uh, you know we had old submarines from the '80s and '90s that are not getting any younger, uh, carrying our ballistic missiles, bombers like the B-52. The the last B-52 to roll out of a Boeing plant was in 1962. We've got B-52s out there where grandparent, you know, the grandpa, you know, his son and his grandson all fly the same airframe, the same plane. Uh, so we needed to rebuild these. So now we have the Columbia-class submarine. We have the uh, the B-21 Raider stealth bomber. It is a new generation of stealth bomber over and above the the B-2 Spirit. Uh, and uh, we're we're getting a new ground-based strategic deterrent uh, or intercontinental ballistic missile, the Sentinel missile, right? So that's costing a lot of money. That's three and a half, you know, three hundred fifty billion dollars. But it's not trillions, and it's not a cost in human lives, you know, that, that would have to be spent. Uh, and me, I have five sons, uh, some of whom are teenagers now and, and are headed toward adulthood. Uh, I have a lot to lose potentially in, in such a conflict scenario in, in the years to come. So I, for one, am really grateful. So when people talk about, well, what's the cost of the Ukraine war? Um, it's a lot cheaper than the cost of the four party assault. A lot cheaper. And worth the paying. <laughs> so uh, that is, is an interesting thing. So if you hear somebody say, we're risking World War III uh, because we're helping uh, Ukraine. No, we're not. If Vladimir Putin knows very well, if he launches his missiles, we'll fire back. Uh, there's no greater Russia if there's no Russia. Right? We will blow Russia off the map. There will be nothing left. Nothing. Vladimir Putin will be dead. All Russians, you know, <laughs> 50% of Russians at least will be dead. 
we're we're kind. We're you know we're not going to hit as many counter value targets. Uh, counter value means cities and urban areas uh, as, as the Russians probably would. We'll hit the major ones though. We have to. That's that's the point of mutually assured destruction. But we'll focus primarily on. Uh, fighting uh, counterforce, you know, destroying Russian military assets and nuclear assets as best we can. Uh, but, you know, you, in strategic warfare, countervalue and counterforce are, you know, they're equal. I mean, you have to take out both. The, otherwise, you don't deter, you know, the threat isn't a, a credible deterrent unless you're willing to do both. Um, yes, we will fire. Some people, you know, Biden wouldn't do that. Yeah, we will fire. If the Russians fire, we fire. That That's how this works. Again, it would not be deterrence if there was any chance that we wouldn't. Okay. So the fact that the Russian missiles are still in the ground. I mean, if Vladimir Putin knew, if he if he had a dice roll where he figured, you know, look, if I get uh, uh, five or above on my two dice, you know, between my two dice, if I roll a five or above, I'll, I'll get America and they won't shoot back. It, the missiles wouldn't be in the ground. Okay. He'd have fired them already. So he knows. He knows he can't launch them. Uh, Vladimir Putin is risking the war. Vladimir Putin is a mass murderer. Vladimir Putin is the one who is in the moral wrong here. And it's not even close, which is my, my next topic here after I take a deep breath. But I wanted to, to introduce you guys to the long-term strategic situation there. Now, just for a minute, let's talk about America's strategic interests and goals going forward from here. Right. What do we want from here? Okay. what would it be best for us to do? We've known for a long time that the population of the world is growing in Africa and Southeast Asia. That's where people are having children. You know, that's where the population is growing. India as well. The India's uh, demographics are changing. Uh, Speaking of demographics, finally, um, was a guest on the Joe Rogan podcast recently. who talked about Russia and China and their demographic issues. And uh, that's. I was so gratified to hear that because I started talking about that stuff 12, 13 years ago and people would look at me like I had two heads. You know, they'd be like, what are you talking about? It's like, I can do statistical analysis. Let me show you some things. Okay. You want to talk about the inverted population pyramid of China? You know, a few years back, we started seeing pictures in 2018, 2019 of uh, vacant abandoned cities in Manchuria, the industrial cities of Northern China, just vacant. Uh, the one-child policy, uh, they destroyed their younger generations. And then once that became ingrained in the, in the culture that people wanted to have their boy, if they could, and only their one child, now people in China don't want to have a lot of children. Uh, they're highly urbanized and, and they're aging. So uh, the population of China is going to go from like 1.3 billion down to about 450 million by the end of the century. Uh, the Chinese population is going to hit a massive decline. And uh, it is aging rapidly now. Uh, so, you know, we've known that for some time. Russia, same deal. Problem for Russians is Russia, you know, a lot of these countries, something people don't understand about the United States, right? We don't have an ethnicity here. Like, yes, we have a lot of people generally from Northern Europe and especially the British Isles. But America is America. And as long as America is ideologically based on liberty and the constitution and our freedoms and what have you, it really doesn't matter who lives here in that sense. Okay. Uh, there are those of us who've maintained it, but as long as we believe in it, we're Americans, right? We have people here who are of German descent and we have people who are Swedish. We have people who are British, people who are French and Italian and Eastern European, Polacks. And, you know, we have all kinds of, of people who come to America and they're Americans. And we have 
Indian people and Chinese people who come here, Japanese people and South Americans, Mexicans and Africans. When you come to America, you're American, right? You become American uh, when you come here legally, <laughs> I will say, and respect our laws and, and don't tell us, you know, how we're wrong to, to be all the things we are, we're, how we're, we're so wrong to be the kind of country that you want to come and live in, right? And, you know, the, the socialist paradise is like Venezuela. Nobody's, nobody's, you know, getting into boats and risking their lives to go to Venezuela. Nobody is uh, uh, going to South Korea and risking the minefield to run into North Korea. You know, North Korea is such a paradise, communist paradise, that, that people are risking the minefield to get into North Korea. No. No, North Koreans, when they can, uh, will risk death. They will cross the minefield and, and risk being, you know, they will be shot at by North Korean forces to get to South Korea, to get to the free world. That's how that works. It's a one-way street, okay? But Russia, while it is a multi-ethnic state, is not a melting pot state like we are, right? There are a lot of people in Russia who are not Russians, really, right? So the great Russians, who are the ethnicity that have ruled over Russia for the past, you know, five centuries, uh, since the time of, of Ivan the Terrible, right? Uh, or Ivan the Great, depending on how you, uh, how you put that. In any case, uh, since Ivan was, was the emperor, uh, the Tsar of uh, Russia, the, the past uh, 400 years or so of, of Russian ascendancy, the great Russians have been the ethnicity who have dominated Russia. But you have a lot of other people in Russia, Dagestanis, you have Chechens, you have Siberians, and I hate to use that term, but there are a bunch of different ethnicities in Siberia. You have the people of Irkutsk and Yakutsk and Kamchatka and all kinds of places in Russia who are not Russians, not great Russians. They are Russians in the sense that they live in a country called Russia, but they're not invested in Russia, right? The Russia that everyone, you know, that, that the Russians are trying to expand right now are great Russians. And demographically, they are in terrible shape. They're not having children. Their population is already declining. And half of the great Russians will be gone by 2050. The population of, China, of Russia overall is going to decline by half. And, uh, you know, it'll be disproportionately great Russians who are disappearing. So Russia's not in great shape demographically. China's not in great shape demographically. Iran has a, long a large population of young people, but their, um, their problem demographically is that while they have a large population of young people, those young people are not having children like previous generations did, uh, but those young people overwhelmingly want freedom. Like they don't support the tyrannical regime. So we'll, we'll have more on that in the future. So, you know, they have, they have more young people, but those young people don't necessarily support uh, the, the, the tyrannical clerical government. And North Korea, we don't know a lot about its North, uh, North Korean demographics. What we know from the people who've defected is that people are in North Korea are poor, starving, uh, in very terrible health. <clears throat> These people come across and we have to treat them for very basic parasites and illnesses that no one in the Western world has because, you know, we have basic medicines. In any case, uh, the people of North Korea are poor and starving and in terrible shape. So we can't imagine that they're very excited to have large numbers of children and large families, right? Those who are having children and families are almost certainly the people who are, uh, you know, part of the, the so-called North Korean middle class or elite, if you will. And those are going to be the people who are uh, kissing up to Kim Jong-un and the regime the most. So demographically speaking, they're in deep trouble. Europe is also in deep trouble too. Don't, don't, I don't know. Europe is dying. 
Okay, uh, America could turn our demographic situation around, and it's starting to look like that's going to happen. Uh, Gen Z has figured out that everything's messed up. They they can't. Most people I know in Gen Z cannot remember a living relative who had a functional relationship, a marital relationship, and they realize that there are a lot of problems with families and what have you, and they want to change that. That's that's the motivation. It's been my experience with them. We're starting to see some statistics and some numbers that are showing uh, that Gen Z is moving in a more conservative lifestyle direction, I'll just say. And and I think you're going to start seeing more more backsides in pews and uh, in churches and synagogues. I think we're going to see more people showing up to shul and to church and starting to, you know, ask what are what are some of the the more important moral questions in life uh, and uh, and seek answers from more traditional sources. But we'll see. In any case, uh, we can turn things around. Europe cannot. Europe is already dead. Uh, Britain maybe a little bit. They can stave it off longer. But uh, European populations, especially in Germany, uh, the demographically native Germans are just not having a lot of children. After the Second World War, Germany did not undergo a population boom. I mean, neither did Japan. Uh, the difference is the Japanese don't take in Im- immigrants, so Japan's population is declining rapidly. Uh, what what the news is with China and the reason Joe Rogan's podcast is on there, China's been fudging their demographic numbers for a lot of years. So I thought that was kind of funny because here I'm, I'm pointing out that, you know, 13 years ago I was looking at falsified Chinese demographics and realizing, you know, along with a lot of other people, I'm not going to take the credit myself, but I was looking at a lot of other people's numbers and various strategic analyses and what have you. And I saw this disaster looming over China. And meanwhile, you know, today we're like, oh, and they've been fudging those numbers. It's even worse than they say. So when we're seeing ghost towns in Manchuria in the manufacturing centers, I believe it. Now you can go to certain cities in America at certain hours and take pictures where there aren't a lot of people on the streets. And I'll give you that. But if you take a number of pictures that show dilapidated buildings and uh, people, you know, gone, if you go to downtown Detroit and take pictures down there, and I know because I have, uh, by the way, uh, you see buildings that are falling apart. I, I saw a library with the books just laying all over the floor and the, the roof had caved in. Um, just just terrible dilapidation. You, you can see a ghost town and you know it's a ghost town. So when we were seeing those a few years ago, we knew China was in bad shape. Also, because the Chinese locked down so severely, Chinese people have not been exposed to the coronavirus. And so they have no herd immunity. Uh, tests have found that in the West, uh, because especially in places where we did not lock down as much, the virus went around, people got it, they got immunities, and they were not as susceptible to new strains and new variants and what have you. And the mortality of the virus at its highest was like 0.2%. Uh, now down from that uh, question, do vaccines work? The vaccines were intended to strengthen the immune system against the illness, not necessarily prevent you from getting it. Um, the jury's out on that, but I mean, it, it doesn't seem like the vaccines were ever really necessary or helpful. I, I, I don't see any data that shows that in any case, the Chinese have been locking people in their homes. So China people haven't been able to get around because of the tyrannical, the tyrannical nature of their government. And so they're three years on from this crisis, still, still fighting this, you know, wave after wave of the virus. And so, uh, you know, that just shows you that the lockdowns and all of that were political over here and were not, you know, helpful for the disease. We, we know this. Johns Hopkins and a number of other 
Universities have put out studies showing that the lockdowns and shutdowns and two weeks to flatten the curve, none of that worked. None of that had any impact. Uh, voluntary reduction of social activity in the early months did reduce it, uh, the, mor the, the, mor the uh, mortality rate just slightly, but that was among people who were vulnerable. Anyway, my, my point here, China's got big problems. China has huge problems right now. And uh, we're, we're in a situation where Russia and China are waning. Now, on the one hand, um, that's a good thing because it means we're not going to have to face off against them in the future. The, the moment for the four-party assault, the moment for those countries to make their big move has passed, right? Uh, and that's, that's an issue. So with that there... As I was saying, Africa and Southeast Asia is where the population growth is, and India, although Indians are also uh, becoming more modern, of course, and having fewer and fewer children. Uh, but, you know, those are those are the places to go. And with Russia being so weak, India and Russia have long been friends. This would be a really great opportunity for the United States to take India by the hand a little more closely. Um, imagine, you know, India does have a, a bit of a blue water navy and um, uh, strong military. Uh, now that India and pa the U.S. has always maintained a friendship with both countries, India and Pakistan, and has refused to give either a major advantage over the other. Now that they're both nuclear powers and they really can't go to war with one another, uh, I think it's safe for us to take India by the hand and make India a major world power. Not on a par with us necessarily, but we can help India become a more advanced military power, give them the weapons and give them the, the, the arms uh, to be a more serious threat to China. There have been some border clashes along the Russia, uh, the, the Indian and Chinese border. Uh, so you imagine for China, the threat, you know, not only would North Korea not be able to do much, the U.S. will make Taiwan more of a porcupine and, and more dangerous, more difficult to, to attack. Uh, that's coming. We're selling weapons to Taiwan and strengthening their defenses. And then on top of that, you know, we'd have India on our side and, and the Southeast Asian countries. But um, we should help India become more of a military power and strengthen our economic ties with India. We need to strengthen our economic ties with Southeast Asia. We already have good ties with them, but uh, we can have stronger ties with Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, especially Singapore, uh, some demographic challenges of its own. But in any case, Vietnam, uh, those countries. Uh, and we need to have stronger ties with Africa. And you know, there are some really difficult issues there with, you know, foreign aid and um, charity and what have you. And it's like, on the one hand, yes, I, I, I see that we want to give aid and we want to feed people and educate people and what have you. On the other hand, the United States did not become a world power thanks to foreign aid, right? That the, the French and the Spanish after the American Revolution didn't uh, send a bunch of money over here to help feed people and, and pay for education and, and do all kinds of charity work, right? Americans worked hard built up our economy, built up a manufacturing economy and then an industrial economy and became the most powerful country in the world. It, it, so we, we really need to focus on economic development in Africa, real economic development, not like the Chinese will go in and build a road and then just leave the equipment on the side of the road and leave. And no, no one in these African countries has the skills to maintain these roads and they, you know, no one will come in and fix them. So now the roads are all full of potholes. They're virtually useless, right? Uh, no one takes care of them. So we, we could do well to go and, and work on building skills and such there. So the U.S. now has Iran and North Korea more or less contained. 
Russia is weak and it is very much in our strategic best interest to continue to support Ukraine against Russia and to continue to see the weakening of Russian uh, forces there. Could negotiations be valuable? Possibly. Uh, but the longer this goes on, the worse it is for Russia. So at this point, there's no disadvantage in supporting Ukraine and waiting and seeing what happens. So there you are uh, in our long term thing. You know, we need to we, we should consider making India. And I, I say consider. I don't have all the answers. I, I don't think I know everything. I know a lot of things. I don't think I know everything. So we should work on developing our thought process on India on making India a, a greater military power uh, that would allow the U.S. Uh, to um, focus less on Iran and have an ally against China. You know, it, it would it would be a very valuable thing. And India and Israel have a great relationship. They're very friendly toward one another. So India, India is close with U.S. allies, not an opponent of any of our allies. So it wouldn't do any harm. And we need to build stronger economic ties with Africa. Um, but what I would do there you ask me, and the food subsidies. You know, we need African food to be sold in European and American markets. We should be buying as much food from Africa as we can. And uh, that would help develop the African economy. And uh, those, those farmers would then be able to send their children to schools. Those children would get a little bit better education and they'll go into other kinds of work. Some of them, uh, you know, they'll continue to be, you know, with mechanization and, and improvements in economic development, they'll be able to produce more and more food, and then food prices around the world will drop, and we'll have plentiful food, and Africa will become more prosperous. And we should invest in uh, tech companies there and what have you. Uh, foreign aid should be direct investment in private economies, I think. that You, you do a better job with that. These like microloans and, and direct investment in projects uh, in these countries would be, would be better. Anyway, those are the things that are in the U.S. best interests right now going forward. And um, building those ties would be valuable. But uh, now that we've gotten past the, the four-party uh, assault, right, this, this is a beautiful time. And so I know it's stressful dealing with Russia. It's, it's stressful with the chaos that is engulfing the world a little bit after all this virus stuff. Could have told you that. I mean, there's this old thing about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I mean, you start off with disease, then comes famine and war. And, you know, it's like you have all these conflicts. All these things happen at once when when the the order and the day to day order is disrupted, then it leads to progressively worse catastrophe. But we'll survive. Things will, things will calm down once again, and America will be on top, uh, as always. And we'll live in a world without bad guys. I mean, once Russia and China are weakened economically and, and falling apart politically, you know, Iran, North Korea can't survive long. And uh, as Africa and Southeast Asia, and India especially, develop as economic powerhouses, and perhaps India also as a military powerhouse, we'll live in a safer world in a freer world. And that'll be a beautiful thing. So now you have uh, a, a broader view of the U.S. strategic situation and the economic situation going forward and why the four-party assault scenario is no longer a threat. And again, what would have been the cost of such a scenario? Um, it's immeasurable, right? In, in human and uh, costs and, and dollar costs. So you know, a few hundred, even if it ultimately costs like 150, 200 billion dollars to defend Ukraine, it's worth every penny. Every penny we're spending there is, you know, uh, thousands of dollars we don't have to spend and millions of lives we don't have to lose because we're not fighting uh, the four party assault. 
And now the In Other News segment. In Other News is a Facebook page that uh, publishes the news stories that don't make the American news uh, stories all around the world. Another news story today is about Mexico. A uh, terrible tragedy going on there. Uh, son of a, a former drug kingpin arrested, and the cartels are on the attack. Uh, there's footage you can find out there of Mexican government helicopters firing at uh, cartel forces in the middle of an attack on a hospital. I mean, they're attacking hospitals and schools. I mean, the cartels are just hideous. Um, from what I'm hearing from people who have family back in, in Mexico, they're saying that uh, in the past there were cartels that had some honor. Let's just say they would not attack the, the schools or the hospitals. They, they had some, but now the new ones that are out there, uh, the ones that are in control now, are absolutely horrific. Uh, there are little villages in Mexico that are virtually abandoned because, you know, they're old women and, and young children because the, the men have to go to America to work because otherwise they'd have to work for the cartels. And many of them do work for the cartels just in America where they make more money doing it, you know, selling drugs or, or committing acts of violence or doing whatever they do here. Um, the, the cartel situation is out of control. Uh, former President Trump has said that he would consider the cartels a military threat and help Mexico put them down. Um, it's, it's a terrible situation there. Uh, Vincente Fuchs, when he was elected president in Mexico in, uh, back in uh, 2000, it was, a, it was a, a major upset to get the Revolutionary Party out of office. The Revolutionary Party had been in power since like 1918 when the Mexican Civil War slowly started to come to an end. Uh, but after all that time, uh, the, uh, the, that party lost power. And the PAN party, which is kind of a free market party focused on uh, fighting corruption and bringing uh, economic development to Mexico, uh, would govern with two presidents, uh, Vincente Fox and Felipe Calderón. These, these guys pushed forward an agenda that brought greater prosperity to Mexico and, and helped fight the, the cartels and what have you. But unfortunately... The, the, drug, the demand for drugs in America has been so powerful that the cartels have only grown in strength. Um, then uh, the revolutionary power got back in power in 2012. So the Mexican uh, system, they elect their presidents for a single six-year term. So no president can serve more than one term of office and may serve for six years. So the, the uh, 2012 election, uh, Peña Nieto won and uh, the revolutionary power was back in power. And again, from what I heard from people, you know, who have family back in Mexico, they were saying everything went back to the old way, the old ways. The, the corruption came back. The power of the cartels came back. Everything went back to to the good old days. And uh, in 2018, uh, they elected uh, Obrador as president. Now, president Obrador is a leftist, not quite a, a Chavez or Maduro or Correa kind of leftist, but he's he's more left. And he's actually truly surprised me and impressed me personally. Like I've seen his campaign for a lot of years and I was never a fan. I'm not a fan of leftists. But I have to say, as a president, um, he has been willing to do what is in Mexico's best interests, regardless of politics. He made deals with President Trump. He was elected in 2018, of course. He made deals with President Trump that were beneficial to Mexico and, and uh, helped asylum seekers stay in Mexico. Uh, Mexico is Believe it or not, because of what I was just talking about with all the young men leaving, Mexico has a shortage of labor. Mexico is experiencing demographic problems. 
One, because the the sexual revolution has hit the Catholic world, you know, countries like Italy and uh, uh, Spain uh, and the uh, Catholic countries of the New World are uh, seeing significant decline in the number of children. There's greater, you know, women's lib. There's good to that, but that means they're having fewer children and their their population is declining. On top of that, we're getting all this migration. If everyone leaves for America, for Del Norte, as they call it down there, um, then there's no one left to work in Mexico. And so they're having demographic problems. Anyway, uh, and Orbador has done more, you know, trying to fight the cartels or what have you. It's just a terrible disaster down there. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I'm so saddened by what's happening in Mexico. Uh, it's a country that I, I like. I, you know, I, my, growing up, um, my uh, dad worked at the school district with a, a number of uh, uh, Mexican immigrants who worked at the school district as well. And uh, we would go over and have, you know, real Mexican food, their homes, and I'd play with their children. And um, I would have a real love and appreciation I love for an appreciation of Mexican culture and, and who Mexican people are as a people. And it's so sad to see that country torn apart. It would be so much more prosperous and so much better off if we could, you know, if they didn't have these cartels and we could trade with them. Uh, you know, they, they have a lot of, you know, auto factories and what have you. I mean, we've we kind of sold out a little bit with NAFTA, but under the uh, USMCA that President Trump negotiated, uh, wages are rising in Mexico. You know, we, we could actually have a really good trade relationship with them. But unfortunately, Mexico may be descending into civil war with the cartels. And that's that's a tragedy. So that is the in other news for today. Now, if you were doing your math, you would know that 2024 is not just a critical election for the United States. Mexico, Mexico will be having their own election as well. And uh, that's going to be interesting. Uh, Obrador has been running for many, many years. It'll be curious to see who's running and uh, if the PAN party or Obrador's party have a chance to win or if the Revolutionary Party comes back to power, uh, because then it'll be a question of whether that government would even be willing to fight the, the cartels and the corruption. Uh, the cartels may end up taking over. There's some dangerous possibilities there. But that's your another news segment for today. I uh, wish I could end on a higher note on a happy note, but, uh, I am always optimistic and I hope that, uh, the Mexican government will be able to fight off the cartels. And I wish that we had a leadership in the United States that was willing to offer whatever resources are necessary to help. The cartels are at least as great a threat to us national security as the terror groups that we've been fighting for the last few years, you know, Islamic state, Al Qaeda, uh, Islamic Jihad, these, these fruitcakes, uh, and, you know, they're they're right on our border and in our country, which makes them a little bit more severe than, say, Russia. Um, you know, this is this is a big problem. In any case, with that, I will say, as always, goodbye. Lehitrod.